God of heaven thunders, whose voice's cadent echoes resounds above the cataracts, and all the world sings glory, glory, glory. The desert rises and tempest wind whips the trees to fury. The lightning splits the forest and the flame diffuses glory, glory, glory. The mighty God eternal is to the throne ascended. And we who are God's people within these walls cry glory, glory, glory.
The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the risings of the sun to its setting. God calls to the heavens above and to the earth that the Lord may judge God's people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Lord God, today you give us a glimpse of who you truly are. Divine presence, the beloved Son of Man, Son of God, transcendent and holy, drenched in dazzling light, may we be engulfed in your radiance this day. May we be startled by your divine appearance among us, and may we be empowered to move out into the world, revealing your light to those we meet. Bind us up with your holy being in this moment, and unite us together as your people. We pray in your triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in Christ's name. And because it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we are gathered, that means our word of welcome is always one that is extended in an unqualified manner. All are welcome in Christ's house. And that is how we greet one another as such here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if they would kindly sign the friendship tag. You'll find that on your pew. If you'll sign your name and send it down and back again, that will give us the advantage of each other's names that we might greet one another following the conclusion of worship. And likewise, to those of you worshiping in other locations, we'd be delighted if you would sign our virtual friendship pad. You'll find it on the same page you used to log into the worship service. So please do let us know that you're worshiping with us. We'd be delighted to know of your presence with us. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, please, to come to a time of fellowship, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall. That's just out this door to the right of the pulpit, down a short hall. There you will see that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments for us. But most importantly, you will find the opportunity to engage with one another in Christian fellowship as we share our common life together. Let me highlight a few things from the back of your bulletin for our attention for uh, the weeks to come, particularly for this week to come. The first is to note that our TNT group is, has an activity right after this service today. So you can read about that in the bulletin and find Laura Coley afterwards, and she will make sure that you are included with that group. You'll note as well that this Wednesday is our Ash Wednesday service. We will, as has become our custom, offer two services for the imposition of ashes, one at noon with a quartet from our choir and one at 7 p.m. with our full choir both services will have the imposition of ashes and the preaching of the word, so please do plan to be here for one of our Ash Wednesday services, or two if you're feeling particularly penitent on Wednesday. We'd be delighted to have you here. I'd like to finally call your attention to our conversations worth having. Now, for weeks, I have been asking you to mark your calendars, and now I am asking you to move beyond marking your calendars to signing up for it. It is this coming Saturday. 
and uh, we would like to put our food order in for that to make sure everyone has a lunch for that day. So please take part in this conversation, an important conversation, at Conversations Worth Having this Saturday. You will not be sorry you did. Brian Blood is one of the best scholars in the business. He will help us to wrestle with important questions, and he will, I am certain, because I know Brian well, he will do it in a way that is inclusive and allows us to remain in Christian community with one another, even as we consider difficult topics. So please move from marking your calendar to actually signing up. We have extended this invitation to other local congregations, and their members are signing up, so I'd really like for our members to sign up. So, and by the way, earlier is better than later on that, please. Uh, with all these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. For our Orthodox siblings, the Sunday before the beginning of Lent is known as Forgiveness Sunday, a day to remember the ways that we have separated ourselves from God, from one another, and from our true selves. So as we prepare for our own 40-day journey of Lent that will begin this upcoming Wednesday, we too seek to let go of that which is no longer ours to carry. We strive to speak truthfully about the things we've done and the things we've left undone, and to forgive one another as we've been forgiven. So come, let us prepare for the journey ahead of us by praying together, first in unison, and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, from the mountaintop we have seen your glory, but your glory is not confined to the mountaintop. Your goodness and mercy are amply displayed throughout our lives, in the company of your people, the church, in the redemption of broken ways of being, in the healing of relationships long stranded. Your goodness is manifold. We are sustained by your presence. We are surrounded by your abundance. We are forgiven by your grace. And yet it takes a mountaintop to confront us with your glory. Even then, we are all too happy not to tell the others. Forgive us, we pray, and open our eyes to the myriad of ways you support and uphold us. And when we have been reminded, transform us into worthy disciples who would tell the good news. forgiveness, whatever once separated us from God and from one another is taken away so that only radiant love remains. Know that the God of all creation is reaching out to you with forgiveness, with acceptance, and inviting us to reach out to one another. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2. Listen for God's word for you. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up in heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were there in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silence. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that this day the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silence. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at a distance from them, and as they both were standing by the Jordan, then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck it in the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other until the two of them crossed over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted to you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind up into heaven. Elijah kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Our second reading comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Listen again for God's word for you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine in the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God add a blessing to these readings. Our gospel lesson is taken from the gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning at the second verse and continuing through the night. Continue now to listen for the word of God to us this day. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John 
and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Since it is Super Bowl Sunday, indulge me in a little walk down memory lane, will you? Picture it. Minneapolis. The year was 2018. The reigning Super Bowl champions, the New England Patriots, fresh off a 13-3 AFC best season, came to town led by their MVP quarterback, Tom Brady. Try to resist booing during the sermon. <laughs> Though our heroes, the Philadelphia Eagles, had finished with a 13-3 NFC best season, they came to town as underdogs following the late season injury of Carson Wentz under the leadership of their backup quarterback, Nick Foles, try to resist cheering. <laughs> with a trick play, the Philly Special, also remembered as the Philly Philly, in which Jason Kelsey snapped the ball to Corey Clement, who pitched it to Trey Burton, who passed it to the now wide-open Nick Foles, they won the game, making Foles the first player to both throw and catch the game-winning touchdown. And I don't need to tell you this. 
but this slick move, folks, is winning with style. Though I was not yet your pastor, like the entire rest of the country outside of New England, I was pulling for an Eagles upset. And despite the well-placed admonition from Saturday Night Live not to burn down our city or punch a police force, despite the well-greased light poles, I have it on good authority that the best word to describe our fair city following the win was pandemonium. Furthermore, the schools, courts, and city offices all shut down for the parade that took place the following Thursday, featuring a now legendary speech by the center Jason Kelsey, who was dressed in a complete mummer's costume. By every description I have heard, it was a uniting, perhaps even defining experience for our city. And unsurprisingly, the language used to describe it on occasion veered over to religious experience. The phrase religious experience, of course, is common slang. The term is bandied about to describe sports wins, political conventions, any moment when common experience interrupts and disrupts ordinary expectations. But I wonder, does true religious experience perhaps run a little deeper? A religious experience can be a profound reconsideration of what we had hitherto expected. A religious experience can be an intrusion of joy when depression or even sadness has been on tap thus far. A religious experience can be the interference of awe into an otherwise blasé moment. Truly religious experiences oftentimes manifest as the revelation of the holy in the midst of the ordinary. And many of us, if we have had such experiences, are a bit reticent to share about them. Perhaps we are concerned that if we do so too earnestly, we will be seen as religious nutjobs to interject an experience of profound otherness into everyday conversation might cause people to believe that we have taken leave of our senses, perhaps because the experience itself is so fleeting, so ethereal, that the language we are given to describe it inevitably fails. Well, perhaps our reticence arises from the reality that what we have experienced as holy might be perceived by others as nothing more than ordinary coincidence. 
I have never forgotten a moment in my late twenties when on a cold, slushy February day in Paris, I entered the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Now, on a prior trip to France in my early twenties, I had been pleasantly surprised that my high school French had stood me in good stead. I had crammed with a common phrase lexicon to prepare, but found to my great delight that I could carry on basic conversation. It was astonishing how much elasticity my brain must have lost in a mere eight years, because this time I was reduced to oui, non, combien d'argent, et vaisselle. As I entered Notre Dame, mass was being celebrated and I have absolutely no idea in what language. It could have been French, it could have been Urdu for all I understood. Now as a minister, I would have loved to have been able to follow the liturgy, but I couldn't. When the service ended and the throngs dispersed, I continued, as did most of the rest of the worshipers, to explore the cathedral. I walked around to the back of the apse, the oldest part of the cathedral, and in one of the small apsidal chapels, a service appeared to be ongoing. Maybe it was a church-sanctioned service, maybe not. I still didn't understand the language. But the music united me in worship with those gathered in the chapel. It took a few moments, but eventually the strains of a Teze tune became clear to me, and I was able to join in. Veni Sancte Spiritus, Veni Sancte Spiritus. It was a numinous experience. That word, numinous, was shot through all of my reading about these texts for the day. Having a strong religious or spiritual quality indicating or suggesting the presence of divinity. Writing on our gospel lesson, Markin scholar Lamar Williamson observed about the transfiguration that for all of Jesus' miraculous power in Mark's gospel, he remains deeply, intensely human in his appearance. But this passage reveals a pure transcendence not seen anywhere else in Mark. The high mountain is the place nearest heaven where revelation occurs. The cloud reminds us of how God moved with the Hebrews in the wilderness. The brightness of Jesus' clothes evokes the Shekinah, the radiance of the pillar of fire with which God went before the people. Williamson concluded, it communicates in visual and auditory terms a fleeting perception of the eternal splendor, an elusive awareness of the divine presence. Furthermore, in his book, The Elusive Presence, Samuel Terry noted of this passage that Mark placed it 
at the center of his gospel account. And importantly, that it represented a turning point in Jesus' attitude toward himself. The story closes the Galilean ministry and prepares for the journey to Jerusalem and certain death. Was Jesus going to be a violent revolutionary, as the Petrine Confession may have implied? The setting of the scene of the Transfiguration was, in all likelihood, the festival of the Feast of the Tabernacles, during which messianic fever often seized the crowds of worshipers. Carrion concludes, in spite of its setting, the narrative does not suggest any heavenly confirmation of the messianic mission of Jesus. On the contrary, the three phases or movements of the scene are rooted in the early Hebraic understanding of the divine presence in contrast to the later expectation of a political messiah. Elijah, like Moses, like Jesus, exemplified the entree nous between us, between humankind and God. Far from setting Jesus apart from the common religious experience of his disciples, the transfiguration instead sets him alongside the presence of God revealed to God's people. And when we consider the stories of God with Moses and God with Elijah, like the transfiguration of Jesus, these are stories drenched in light. It is no doubt easy in the frenzy of religious experience to become caught up in what we see in the appearance of the events. The light, the disruption of ordinary events, the appearance of the extraordinary. These hallmarks of religious experience, as important as they surely are, can, in fact, distract us from what we may learn in such moments. In her marvelous book, Sowing the Gospel, Mary Ann Talbert notes the final command of the voice from the cloud, hear him, forces the audience to reassess the apparent point of the episode. The Greek text is plain. Akuete autu. It is imperative. It is a command. Listen to him. She further observes that in a passage that seems overwhelmingly focused on what we see, the command is to listen. And what Jesus has been preaching, teaching, saying to his disciples and to the crowds that followed him, is this. The way he is going is the way of suffering. 
and his followers will experience such things also. And no matter what we see, we must hear what Jesus is teaching. To be clear, it isn't suffering for suffering's sake that Jesus is preaching. It is suffering in which faithfulness to God manifests the reign of God in the world. It is as if Mark is saying, you're gobsmacked by the miracle? Great. You're moved by the healings? Wonderful. You're swept along with the crowds and their fervent feeling, their religious experience? Fine. But don't miss the message. Permit me one more scholarly quotation, this time from Brian Blunt, who writes, Suffering is an inevitable consequence of the Son of Man's tactical preaching, but neither a tactical nor a strategic goal of the Lord's way. The tactical goal remains what it has been throughout Mark's context of the situation thus far, the extension of the future and transformative kingdom into the present human circumstances. Preaching, not suffering, even on the cross, is the tactical activity that leads to it. The strategic goal is the consummate kingdom that is prefigured in the parousia prolepsis of the transfiguration. The numinous experience of divine revelation, as dramatic as it is, is not itself the point any more than the trappings of our worship are themselves the point. The point is not the three figures drenched in light, but instead how they usher us into a world drenched in light. The experience of the divine in the Apsidal Chapel of Notre Dame was not the words of the song or even the notes that carried them, but what resided between the notes and the words, the manifestation of the body of Christ that transcended both language and liturgical practice to draw in those who happened by. And perhaps this is heresy, but the power of a Super Bowl victory is the way the parade brought about the breaking down in our city, which is so often divided in so many ways, breaking down all of those divisions of neighborhood, ethnicity, economic class, politics, whatever would keep us apart from one another. One might even call it a religious experience. A world drenched in light. That is the way Jesus is pointing in Mark's gospel. Because faithfulness to the kingdom message of Jesus 
invariably leads to the breaking down of the dividing walls of hostility and the breaking in of the reign of Christ. It is frequently and rightly noted that in Mark's Gospel account, at the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple is shredded from top to bottom. That which separates the holy from everything else is swept aside. The division between the numinous and the not-so-special is gone. And as dark as that moment is, it is positively pulsating with possibility. Mark's audience knows that while we do not yet see it in this moment, God will raise Jesus from the dead. When the women come to the empty tomb on the other side of Lent, the darkness of the early morning will be pregnant with hope as news of the resurrection ultimately whispers forth. And the new world, drenched in resurrection light, becomes the world in which the entree new of God and Moses and God and Elijah and God and Jesus becomes the world of the entree new between God and you and God and me. Oh, I know we aren't to the empty tomb yet. Lent hasn't even yet begun. We've not even come down from the mountaintop yet. Maybe we're still up there with Peter, basking in the warm glow of reflected familiarity with the divine, not knowing that the divine light is shining on us also. No, we aren't aren't there yet. There is a valley still to transverse. There are booths still to build, shelters to keep us looking at a reflected glow, not realizing that we are already drenched in light. It's not even Lent yet. So it's too soon to trumpet forth about resurrection possibilities. Isn't it? Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
having heard the word of God preached and proclaimed, we are invited this time to remember that God can tear down the divisions between us and unite our voices together as one as we declare what we believe. So come, let us join our voices with faithful across the world in time and space. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We gather together in this place each week because we dare to believe that God's light is breaking into our world, even now, even after everything. So come, you great cloud of witnesses, and let us behold the wonder of God's light in the world through our care for one another. With a spirit of awe and gratitude, let us offer what is ours to give to one another. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
and loving God, we have endured much, and we know that there is more to overcome ahead. So fill us with your light this day and move within us so that we have the energy to do the work that you have called us to do. Bless these gifts that they may be used for your justice and healing purposes in our community and world. Go with us as we climb down our mountains and go out to share your light with the world. We pray in the name of your beloved. Amen. Let us bring with us all of our prayers as we join our hearts together. Let us pray. Loving God, you show up in our lives in ordinary ways and through ordinary people. So often we walk through our days unmoved, untouched by the beaming world around us, and then you find a way to break through, to surround us with such unexpected radiance to reverberate within our being awe and wonder. Oh God, we long to meet you in your holiness. We long to be filled with a vision of your divine being, to be strengthened for the journey and work ahead. Give us a glimpse of your wonder. Anchor us to your presence once more and transform us into the people who were created with loving purpose in this world. We thank you, God, that you do not reside in faraway mountaintops alone, but you meet us in the messy complexity of our actual lives. We offer to you now the people and places, the conflicts and situations that are too complex for us to carry on our own. We pray for those who are on long paths of recovery. We pray for those who are carrying their grief with them wherever they go. We pray for those who live in constant fear of attack and violence and starvation. We pray for those who cannot possibly imagine a way forward with another. Move within us, O oh God, not only through our prayer but through our work partner to collaborate to be sites of your generosity and justice affirming peace in this world as we are pulled in a hundred different directions each day as we are tempted to give in to our worry and to protect ourselves by tuning out we ask you to awaken us up to the wonder that we can bear in this moment shift our faces to the dazzling possibilities that surround us open us up to the opportunities for connection and compassion even after everything we've endured. Oh God, move within us. Co-create alongside us systems of support even now as we reach out to you in prayer, praying the prayer your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Mark's gospel narrative is the one we will be spending the majority of our time in throughout the season of Lent and even on Easter Sunday. And for many, many years, centuries even, Mark's gospel was considered the least sophisticated, the one that perhaps took Matthew and cut off all the the interesting bits and ended itself, in fact, on a preposition, which is bad Greek grammar, by the way. That's not actually true about Mark's gospel. But in the 20th century, Mark's gospel had quite an image rehabilitation. It is now perhaps seen as the most elegantly sophisticated of the gospel because Mark does things with irony that the other gospel writers miss entirely. And one of the recurring themes that happens in Mark, you'll hear it over the next week, is the line, they went and told no one, for they were afraid. But Mark knows we know the rest of the story, which means someone went and told. So go and tell the good news. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.